You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Hey, great to be here. As Pete said, I was here a year ago. It was Remembrance Sunday, so I used to remember um, November last year when we were recognizing and appointing elders, and it was great to be part of that, part of your story with you, and uh, understand that in January it's going to be your sixth birthday as a church. So well done for getting going, getting and keeping going, and being a blessing uh, in the borough of Ealing. We are all about planting and strengthening churches. That's what uh, Advance, the network of churches we're, we're part of, it, it is what we do, what we're committed to, what we love. Uh, last Tuesday, I was in uh, Waterloo with Grace Waterloo Church, meeting with their leadership team, a church which started just a few months after you did, and uh, fantastic to see how they're doing, probably a similar kind of number. They meet in two services, one in the morning, one in the afternoon, so brilliant to see them south of the river. Great to see you up here. Uh, Thursday, I was up in Glasgow, where we're starting a new church, Glasgow Grace Church. Ian and Lindsay Kennedy left our church a few months back, back in August, to move up to Glasgow and to start a new church up there. And on Thursday night, we had a vision night, gathering people in preparation for the launch in January. Had 65 people there on Thursday night, looking in to be part of that church. Just amazing. So uh, we love planting and strengthening churches. And I hope this morning uh, that I can strengthen you in some way, as I have the privilege of being here I'm going to talk from a passage of scripture which describes a businesswoman, a snake girl, and a jailer. And this story shows us that Jesus knows you, that Jesus can meet with you, and Jesus can work through you. Jesus knows you, Jesus can meet with you, and Jesus can work through you. It's in uh, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16 is where we're going to be reading from. And so the scripture should appear up on the screen as we go. Verse 6 of Acts chapter 16. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. Let me help you to orientate yourself in terms of the geography. Got a few maps to give you a history of the book of Acts. Acts 2, the Holy Spirit falls upon the first believers on the day of Pentecost. They're radically transformed by experiencing the empowering presence of God poured out upon them. They go out and preach, and that starts in the city of Jerusalem. The first disciples are kind of in Jerusalem, huddled together uh, with just a few forays out into little region called Samaria, and out into Judea. And there's one really interesting connection with Africa because there's an official from Ethiopia who's come to Jerusalem, and he has an encounter with Philip, 
Philip the Evangelist, we call him, he comes to faith and presumably goes home to Ethiopia and starts to spread the gospel there. But the gospel is kind of contained in Jerusalem. And then persecution breaks out against the Christians. And as a result, some of them are scattered and some of them go up to Cyprus and then up to a town called Antioch. It's a big city. It was the third most third largest city in the Roman Empire, a really important place. And their people who are not Jewish start to believe in Jesus. This is a breakthrough moment because up till now, apart from the Ethiopian, all the believers in Jesus, they were all Jewish. They get to Antioch and suddenly people who aren't Jewish start to respond to the gospel of Jesus as well. Next part of the map, we get to Acts 13. And Paul and his friends, uh, Barnabas and some others, set out from the church in Antioch, they go to Cyprus, and then they travel around the eastern Mediterranean in what we now think of as Turkey, and they plant churches, start churches in all these different towns, starting and strengthening churches. It's what we're all about. It's what the apostles were doing in these early days of the church. And this is full of amazing stuff. You read the stories, breakthrough in the gospel, miracles happening, crowds of people turning in faith to Jesus, and also real difficulty one point, the Apostle Paul is stoned. I think he's dead. They pray for him. He gets back up and gets on with the mission again. And then we get next map to Acts 16 and the rest of the story of Acts. And this is where we are today, where Paul and his friends again set out from Antioch and they go to visit the churches that they've previously visited. So they're strengthening as well as planting. And then they look to push on further. And they try and visit a couple of places. And it says here in the story that the Spirit of God prevents them. They try and get to where those red crosses are, to uh, Bithynia, into Asia. And somehow God stops them from going. And instead, a man of of Macedonia, they have this vision, and uh, go to Greece and arrive in the town of Philippi. And then the rest of the story describes how they move around that part of Greece. And then Paul, of course, goes to Italy, and he might have even got to Spain. And the book of Acts tells this amazing 30-year story about churches being started, churches being planted, churches being strengthened, the gospel spreading throughout the whole of the Mediterranean region from nothing. There were no Christians. Suddenly, a group of Christians formed in the city of Jerusalem. And then within a few years, within 30 years, churches started all around the Mediterranean region. Absolutely Amazing. Let's do it again. Planting and strengthening churches. Now, this story is really interesting. It's a fascinating story. Paul and his companions, they're pushing into mission. And uh, how do they decide where to go? One of the questions that I've often been asked as a pastor is, how do I get guidance? How do I know what God wants me to do in my life? The book of Acts gives us a really good model for how to make big decisions. What we see is that the apostles just crack on. They just push on into mission, but they also are very sensitive in listening to the voice of God. So Paul and his friends are always strategically planning, but they're also sensitively listening. And what we see in this story is that Paul and his companions, and we know there's at least four of them in this part of the story, Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, they're pushing into mission, and there's nothing passive. They're not just sitting in a room waiting for divine guidance. They're They know there's a mission to do. They know there's people to reach. They know there's a a whole world which knows nothing of Jesus. And so they just say, let's get on with it. Let's keep pushing. They've started churches in all these towns. They want to push further. And uh, they just keep cracking on. But the Holy Spirit then intervenes. In the midst of their planning, their strategizing, suddenly, somehow, God intervenes and says, you're not to go there. And we're not told exactly how that happens 
Maybe a prophetic word came to somebody, maybe one of the churches they were working in, somebody said, we really feel that God doesn't want you to go to this place. But for some reason, the Holy Spirit keeps them from entering a couple of places that they want to push into. And uh, part of that in the divine picture, what's going on seems to be that Paul and his friends, they were focusing in what we now think of as Turkey, which is a huge mission field, but God had bigger plans. That God didn't just want them to stay there, God wants them to go to a whole new continent. And there's this vision of a man from Macedonia in Europe who says, please come and help us. And that's the sign that the door has opened, that they're not just to stay in Asia, they're now to cross to Europe. And so they jump in a boat, they cross the Aegean Sea, the bottom of the Mamara Sea, uh, just down from where Istanbul now is, and they go to the island of Samothrace, stop there overnight, get on another boat, cross over, land on the other side, arrive in Europe. Up till now, the only Christians in the world were in the continent of Asia and the Ethiopian official who'd gone back home to his home in Africa. There were no believers in Jesus in Europe. We think about Europe as the Christian continent. It once wasn't. There were no believers in Europe. And then Paul and his friends get a boat, land at Neapolis, and travel to Philippi. And Philippi is an interesting place. Philippi was named after Philip II, who was father of Alexander the Great. And it was in a strategically important place where it's located. You can see it on the map there. It was on the Via Ignatia, which was a major Roman road traveling east to west. So it was important for trade and commerce and business. And the city of Philippi was also quite unusual because although it was in Greece, it was a Roman colony. There had been some very significant battles there a few decades before in which the city had been pretty much destroyed, and then it was restarted as a Roman city. The Roman authorities moved a whole bunch of Roman citizens into Philippi as an outpost of Rome in Greece, extending and consolidating the rule and power of the Roman Empire. They moved a bunch of ex-servicemen and those kind of people into the city to start this city as a Roman city. And it wasn't a particularly big place, maybe ten or 15,000 people, and it was a pretty tough place, but it was a place where a great church started. It looked like really hard ground. It was a, a Roman colony full of tough people there to consolidate Rome's rule, there to make a bit of money, the significant town on a trading route. And there seemed to have been hardly any Jews there at all. When the apostles went to a new town in the book of Acts, they normally go to a synagogue first to talk about Jesus. And there wasn't a synagogue in Philippi. To have a synagogue, you had to have at least 10 Jewish men. If you had 10 Jewish men, you could start a synagogue. There was no synagogue in Philippi, so that probably means there there weren't even 10 Jewish men in the whole city. So this looks like really tough ground to go to. But God calls them there through a vision, and something amazing begins to happen. Let's read on in the story, verse 13. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. There was no synagogue. There weren't ten Jewish men, but the next best thing was to gather by a river, and it seems there weren't even any men worshipping God. There was just a small group of women who somehow knew the God of the Jews. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. 
One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia. Thyatira was uh, back in what we think of as Turkey, um, <coughs> a different city the other, back into Asia. She was a dealer in purple cloth and a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed as he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself! We are all here! The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with with joy, because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Three very different people, a businesswoman, a snake girl, and a jailer. Lydia, she was from Thyatira, this town now known as Akizar in what we think of as Turkey. And this is a town that was famed for production of purple dye. And even up until about 150 years ago, uh, purple dye from that town was used in the production of carpets until they invented chemical dyes and uh, that old-fashioned dye technique was uh, abandoned. Now, she had left her hometown and she'd come to Philippi 
on business. She's a trader in purple cloth. And she's a Gentile. She's not a Jew, but somehow she is worshipping the God of the Jews. And maybe back in her home city, there had been a Jewish community whom she'd been influenced by and had come to worship their God. And she and some of her friends are meeting by the river because there's not even a synagogue, because there aren't enough Jews in the town of Philippi. And Paul and his friends come and they look for the place of prayer. There's no synagogue. Where are people going to gather to pray? They gather by the river. And so they go to look for people who believe in the Jewish God. They find Lydia and her friends. They speak about Jesus, and Lydia responds. Now, think about this. Lydia was the first person to be converted to faith in Jesus Christ in the continent of Europe. There had been no believers in Jesus in the continent of Europe before this. She is the very first one. And immediately she's baptized. The next river, she gets in the river, she gets baptized in the name of Jesus. The sign that she is entering new life in Christ. It's new life for her, it's new life for Europe, it's new life for the world. And it's not just her. It says her whole household responds and get baptized. Now, in the kind of the worlds of this time that we're looking at, a household would have meant her blood relations, but also servants, employees. There would have been a a little crowd. We're not told how many, but probably 10, 15, 20 maybe people who were kind of connected to and dependent upon Lydia. She's a businesswoman. She's trading. She's making the money. She has a household who depends upon her. And they all also come to share in the faith that she has received. Now, that's what we're looking for as well whole networks of people to respond to the gospel together. That's how it happens in the Bible. That should be our expectation in Ealing. should be our expectation in Bournemouth and Paul, where I'm from. That's what we're looking for, whole networks of people to respond to the gospel together. Back in my church, we had somebody come to faith this week who has been coming along for about the last four or five years. And uh, her husband came to faith, and he was baptized a couple of months ago. And just this week, Liz came to the place where she said, I want to open my heart to Jesus as well. And she's a bit of a Lydia in terms of a successful person. Doesn't look like she needs very much. And uh, she was also a Lydia in terms of being kind of open and soft-hearted, but it's taken some time. And it's just been amazing now to see their households coming to faith. It's not just her, it's not just her husband, it's them both. And the influence that we believe that will have then upon their networks of friends and relations. Now, in the story of Lydia, we see this grace of God at work. That God comes to her, speaks to her through Paul and his friends, and she responds in faith. And think about this. You might expect, in terms of how the story goes, who's going to be the first convert in the continent of Europe? I mean, that's amazing. I think you get to heaven one day and you look for the really key people in the history of the gospel. And who's the first person to believe in each continent? You go and find the Ethiopian who becomes the first believer in Africa. You go and find who's the first person to believe in Europe. And probably from what, the way the rest of the story goes, you'd expect it to be a Jewish man. But it's not a Jewish man, it's a Gentile woman. And she is a great example, I think, in the Bible of what it is to be a a good, a godly woman, to be a woman. She's successful. She's forging ahead. She's forging her own path in a man's world. She's getting ahead. She's running a business. She's caring for her household. And she's searching after God. And she responds to the gospel of Jesus Christ. She's a great example of a woman. 
The second character in the story is the slave. Now, there's a lot in this account which kind of probably makes our cultural nerve ends tingle a little bit. First of all, she's a slave. And that's something which we feel an immediate kick against because when we think of slavery, we tend to particularly think of the Atlantic slave trade, about the horrors of slaves being taken from West Africa to the United States. And so we think about slavery in those appalling terms. Now, she's a slave girl, and it's clear that she is being exploited in every sense of the word. She's being exploited by her owners financially, I'm sure she is being exploited physically, probably sexually, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. She was an exploited woman. And she's a slave who also, the scripture says, has a spirit by which she tells fortunes. Now, there's no real explanation or apology given for that. And that can, again, jangle our kind of cultural nerve ends. What, what do you mean she has a spirit? What is this kind of spirit talk? It sounds a bit weird, a bit spooky, but the story just tells it straight. She has a spirit which enables her to see things which people can't normally see. And by doing that, she earns a whole bunch of money for the owners who are exploiting her. And it's not just that she has a spirit, but actually, in the original language, what we see here is that it's a python spirit that she has. Now, in the Greek worldview, in Greek culture and religion, there was a belief that the god Apollo um, gave a python spirit to pythoness priestesses. And by the power of that python spirit, those priestesses were then able to tell the future. The most famous of these was at the shrine in Delphi, where there was a Pythian priestess who was possessed of a python spirit given by Apollo. And people would come from all over the place to go to the oracle at Delphi to have the future told. And so this slave girl in our story, she's a kind of derivative of that bigger story of what is believed and practiced in the Greek culture and religious shape of the day. She's possessed by what people believe is a python spirit given by the god Apollo so she can tell the future. And whatever we might think of that, the spirit that is at work in her recognizes who Paul and his friends are and what they stand for. She goes around, she sees them, and she starts shouting, these men are servants of the Most High who are telling you the way to be saved. And that's a bit weird, but the reality is that spiritual forces are alert. Back in the gospel stories about Jesus in Mark chapter 1, it says that Jesus drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Now, demonic forces, spiritual forces are spiritually alert. They know who God is, they know who Jesus is, and they recognize who Paul and his friends are. Now imagine the dynamic of this. Imagine what's going on. Paul, Luke, Silas, Timothy, they're seeking to disciple the new believers. Lydia and her household have come to faith. They're seeking to disciple them, and they're looking to make more converts for Jesus Christ. And this slave girl starts following them around, shouting. And you might think, well, that's good news because she's telling the truth. These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved, which was exactly true. 
They were servants of the Most High God who were telling people the way to be saved. But actually, it wasn't helpful at all. It wasn't helpful advertising. It was an unwelcome distraction. Philippi was a tough city. And the apostles knew they needed to tread carefully because it was going to be easy to stir up trouble. It was going to be easy to stir up opposition. And actually, the way that this girl was shouting was not helping them in their mission. It was hindering it. It's like on Thursday when I was up in Glasgow with Ian and we were walking around Glasgow together. If somebody had started following after us shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. That would have been true, but it wouldn't have been particularly welcome. And you can imagine the team discussions when Paul and his friends go back to Lydia's house in the evening and they're sitting around the dinner table and you can imagine them talking together. It's like, this is getting a bit much. I mean, just every day this girl is following us and shouting and it's just such a distraction and it's uh, drawing unwelcome attention and it's going to get us in trouble. What should we do? And it seems it takes quite a long time for them to do anything until at some point, for whatever reason, Paul just kind of reaches a tipping point. And he turns around, and it says he's annoyed. He's kind of in a spiritual fury. And he turns around, and he points at the girl. And he doesn't rebuke the girl. The girl's not the problem. It's the spirit that's the problem. He rebukes the spirit and says, be gone in the name of Jesus. There's this moment of spiritual authority where it suddenly just comes. And that's a bit, that's interesting as well, because this has been going on for several days, and And they'd done nothing. And then just suddenly, for whatever reason, Paul has this moment of spiritual authority. There's another story very like this back in Acts chapter 3, where the apostles Peter and John go up to the temple to worship in Jerusalem. And there's a man who's lame who's sitting at the temple gates begging. And he's been lame his whole life. And he's sat at the temple gates his whole life begging. And Peter and John have gone to the temple their whole life. So they must have seen him hundreds of times. But for whatever reason, at that moment, Peter looks at the man who's lame and begging and says, in the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. And he gets up and walks. And there's just that moment where something happens. Spiritual authority comes and there's sudden power to heal him. And in this story, there's sudden power to cast the demon out. And the snake spirit in the girl, she, it not only recognizes the greater power of Jesus, but has to submit to the power of Jesus. Now, there's all kinds of questions that in our 21st century culture we might have about this story. Slave girls and python spirits and, ah, what's all this about? But here's the point. Just as we were singing a moment ago, there is power in the name of Jesus. There's power in the name of Jesus. And that's good news for this girl because she's suddenly freed from what must have been a torment. That she's in spiritual and psychological oppression, just as she's in physical oppression as well from the owners who abuse her. And she's set free by the power of Jesus. Now that's good news for her. But it's bad news for her owners Because suddenly the revenue stream dries up. She's no longer telling people's fortunes. She's no longer making money for the people who own her. And it looks like the crowd have just been waiting for an opportunity to get at Paul and his friends. And this is their moment. And so they seize Paul and Silas and drag them off to be tried. And uh, Timothy and Luke seem to not get caught up in this For whatever reason, it's Paul and Silas who get dragged away. They're attacked by the crowd, and it says that they are severely flogged. This isn't just a kind of a 
mild whipping. It's a severe flogging with rods. And this is a a crowd of hard-bitten Roman citizens who are not at all happy about these wandering Jewish spiritual guys coming into their city and spreading a different religious message and messing up the normal order of things, messing up their fortune tellers and contradicting what they normally do and what they normally believe. And so they drag Paul and Silas into the marketplace and they flog them and beat them and then throw them into jail. And you think they must have been in a total physical mess. Imagine what it's like to have a severe flogging with rods. They must have had their backs ripped open and they're thrown into jail and in the inner cell. Don't want them to get away. And they're not even just in the cell. They're in stocks. They've got their feet locked up. They're in a complete physical mess. But it says they start praying, start singing. That's pretty amazing. I could say a lot about that. I think how quickly I get grumpy. I think I miss my lunch. I don't want to pray and sing. I just want to grumble about how hungry I am. They're in jail. They've been severely flogged and they're praying and singing. Just amazing. And then we meet the jailer, the third character of our story. And he was probably a uh, former soldier. He'd probably been given this job as a kind of retirement package and wasn't a particularly demanding job, but it carried serious responsibilities because under Roman law, if you held prisoners and they escaped, then you had to pay with your life. And so this is a guy who's a tough man. He's probably served with the legions. He's seen it all. He knows it all. He's been there. He's done it. He's got the t-shirt. He's as blue collar as they come. He's a tough working class guy. He does things by the book. He's a servant of Rome. He's probably not easily impressed or intimidated. He's heard it all. He's seen it all. He knows it all. And it takes an earthquake to get his attention. And he's a decisive man. He thinks the prisoners have escaped. He knows what that means. And so rather than chasing after them and trying to catch them or whatever, instead he just pulls out his sword and he's going to kill himself. Spare the authorities the problem. Paul shouts out, it's okay, we're here. He doesn't kill himself, but he's just as decisive in his response to God. Immediately responds, says, what can I do? How can I get saved? He responds in faith to Jesus, and he and his household are baptized. Now, this jailer and Lydia couldn't be more different. She's a successful businesswoman. He's a hard-bitten jailer. But they both respond to Jesus and bring their households with them. Now, three such different people. The independent businesswoman. Doesn't look like she needs anything. The tormented slave girl. I mean, her needs are obvious and completely overwhelming. And then the jailer, who's just tough-skinned and getting on with life. But actually, they all need Jesus. Lydia's need isn't obvious at all. She's making a success of life. In a man's world, she's forging her own path. She's got a business. She's got a household who depend upon her. She's spiritual, but she knows it's not enough. She really wants to know God. And in a conversation by a river, she meets Jesus. And it's a really undramatic conversion story. She's just by the river, seeking God. Someone comes along and tells her about Jesus, and she kind of falls into belief. It's easy, it's beautiful, it's 
not confrontational at all. It's not dramatic at all, but it's what she needed. The slave girl's need is very obvious. She's tormented, she's abused, she's oppressed, she's physically and psychologically and spiritually and economically abused, and she is utterly powerless. But she encounters a greater power, a power that's greater than her owners and a power that is greater than the snake spirit that possesses her. She meets Jesus in a moment of spiritual authority and she's set free. And then there's a jailer. He's not looking for God. Imagine these characters. If you're running your alpha course, Lydia would be in your alpha course. She's searching for God. The slave girl wouldn't be in your alpha course. She'd be standing outside ranting and raving and causing a scene. And your team would be saying, what are we going to do about this person? The jailer, he wouldn't be anywhere near your alpha course. He would never even cross his mind. He'd have no thought that he needed God at all. He's just a thick-skinned, tough guy who's getting through life, working out his retirement, earning enough cash so he can finally stop working altogether. He's worked hard and he's not to be messed with. But God messes with him. And God messes with his jail. And God messes with his stocks. And all the paraphernalia of Rome's power and authority. He encounters someone who's got more authority than Caesar and his legions. He encounters Jesus. Now, what's your story? Which of these three are you more like? Are you more like a Lydia who just kind of fell into belief? You had life pretty sorted anyway, but you knew there was something more. Is your story more like the slave girl that you knew you were in need? You were caught up in all kinds of stuff and had to get free. Were you more like the jailer? You weren't looking for God and then somehow it was like just walking into a lamppost and Jesus met with you. What about the people in your networks, your family, your friends? Do they look too successful for Jesus? Do they look too needy for Jesus? Do they look too hard for Jesus? Well, let this story give you confidence. The book of Acts gives us a model of what the first church was like. And that often feels like a real challenge because what we see in Acts seems to be often so much more than certainly what I experienced, but that gets me dreaming about what God can do. Think about your friends. Do they look too successful? Do they look too needy? Do they look too hard for Jesus? Well, dream about what God can do. If Jesus could set the slave girl free, if he could give Lydia what she really needed more than her earthly success, and if he could break into the tough hearted, hard-skinned jailer, Jesus can meet with your friends too. Let's just finish the story off quickly. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates. And when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. And they left. This is such a nice little twist at the end of the story. We just need to finish here. That where it gets to is that Paul says, 
we're not just wandering Jewish troublemakers. Actually, we're citizens of Rome. And this is meant to be a Roman city. This is meant to be a Roman colony. This is meant to be a place where Rome is represented. And is this how you treat Romans like us? It should never have happened that they got dragged into the marketplace and beaten up and thrown into jail. Rome was meant to exercise right laws. They should have had a trial. And they should have been, should have been tested whether they had actually done anything wrong. And Paul says to them as they come and want to kick them out of town, look, we actually are more Roman than you are. You think we just came to stir up trouble in your city. You thought we were something which we weren't. Actually, we are more faithful to Rome than you are. We're, more, we're the Romans, not you. And I think there's application for us in this because in our culture now, 21st century Britain, for those of us who are Christians, it can feel at times as if often so much of the world, so much of the media... So much of the message that comes across is, you Christians, you evangelicals, you God-botherers, you don't really belong anymore. Take your Jesus stuff somewhere else. Take your ideas somewhere else. You don't really belong in modern society. And like Paul and Silas, we should say, actually, no, we belong more than anyone. We do, because what our society, what our culture needs is to know the truth of God in Jesus Christ. We're called to be model citizens. We're called to be more Roman than the Romans. Redeemer Church Ealing, you should be more Ealing than Ealing, the best citizens of this borough. And this borough needs you. It needs this church. And what we see in Paul and his friends is a kind of humble swagger. They are humble. They don't claim stuff which isn't theirs. They don't try and exercise an authority which they don't have. There's a humility about them, but there's also a swagger. There's a confidence. They kind of walk shoulders back and head held high. And that means that they keep pushing into new territory and they rejoice when they're flogged. And they're not intimidated by human authority or by demonic forces. There's a model for us in how to live, us Christians a humble swagger. Now Jesus knows you and Jesus can meet with you and Jesus can work through you. Plan and strategize and listen to the voice of God. In Ealing, it's not hard to find people like Lydia or the slave girl or the jailer. In Ealing, you've got people who look like they're successful and don't need anything. In Ealing, you've got people who are obviously full of need. And healing, you've got people who just look tough and hard. It's not difficult to find people like that. But Jesus, can know, Jesus does know them and Jesus can meet with them and Jesus can work through you to connect with them. Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus here this morning. Maybe you think you've got life too sorted. You don't need Jesus. Maybe you think your life's too much of a mess. And Jesus could never connect with you. Maybe you think you're just too hard. Maybe you're just too impressed by Rome, by the culture around us and all it offers. Now, today could be your day. What this story tells us is that people turn to Jesus and it brings joy. The jailer found joy when he met with Jesus. Jesus knows you. Jesus can meet with you. Today could be your day. And the Redeemer Church... My encouragement to you would be to walk with a humble swagger 
as you go about what God has called you to in this borough and belong. Ealing needs you. You belong here. Be more Ealing than Ealing and let Jesus work through you for his glory and the good of this place. Amen? Amen. Let's stand, I'll pray, and hand back to the guys. Jesus, thank you so much for this church. Lord, thank you for what you have built here over the past six years. Thank you for what you'll build in the years to come. Lord, as we think about the story of Acts, that 30-year history of extraordinary gospel expanse, I pray for this church that over the next 30 years, you would do amazing things. Lord, I pray that many other churches would be started and strengthened by what happens out of Redeemer Church Ealing. And I pray this part of London the gospel would be proclaimed and lifted up. The good news of Jesus Christ will be proclaimed through this company of people who walk with a humble confidence, a humble swagger, knowing that they are called by God, have a mission from God, have a purpose in God. Thank you for your call on our lives. Thank you for what you've given us to do. We love you, Jesus. Amen.